0: So let's consider verses 4 through 7 this morning. Paul writes, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to pause and to worship you, to thank you for your kindness in saving us, to thank you, Father, for this wonderful, gracious gift of the presence of your Holy Spirit, which we sang about last night. And thank you, Father, for your word. Your son said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, you have ordained that we would survive by and thrive through the word of God. So today, may it be a help to us. May it point us towards Christ. May it give us encouragement and hope to bring about reconciliation and health and strength into our homes and to overcome conflict and bitterness. And Father, may you be glorified in the way that we hear the Word of God, and and most of all, Father, in the way that we respond to the Word of God. If you don't help, Lord, it'll be useless. So we're trusting you, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So I want to talk about what I'm calling merciful love this morning, and again, the idea is this. We talked last night about our devotion to God being sort of the foundation, and as we grow in our devotion to God, it's going to necessitate this love for others. And I want to talk about what that love actually looks like. So a couple of years ago now, it didn't seem that long, a couple of years ago now we were sitting in our home, in our kitchen really, and our kitchen has this large window and it's right on the edge of our sort of roof structure there and it was a real hard downpour of rain. We were sitting there eating And I think there was a discussion I wasn't paying attention to, because I'm a husband and that happens often, and the discussion was going on, and I found myself sort of staring up at this window while the rain was coming down. And my eyesight's not super good, and I thought, I feel like I see water inside my house right now. And so I'm sitting there staring at the corner of the blind, you know, where the little metal bracket holds it in place. And I'm like, I swear that's a drip of water and it's inside my house. So I kept staring at it and I get up, get out from my seat. I walk around the table, I walk over, put my finger up there. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. It's raining in my kitchen, it's coming into the house. So I start to do some work there because I can't let anything go. I had to deal with it right away. So I'm pulling the blinds down. And as I pull the blinds down, I recognize behind the bracket, there's not only water and drips, there's a hole. And I look at the hole, I'm like, oh man, this is not a new problem. And so I start looking in the hole, start looking down the window casing, and I notice that sort of the tape on the drywall is lifted and began to peel over time. I'm like, okay, I wonder how far this goes. And so I look down to the baseboard and the baseboard is super straight except for right there. And all of a sudden, boom, it bows out. So right there in the midst of this meal, I'm going out to my shop in the garage, coming back in with this big old spatula. And I'm hammering off the baseboard. I pull it back. And I'm telling you, this looked like one of my kid-stuffed animals. It was as furry as mold could be. I'm talking black and green and all kinds of colors. And it was right there at the base of the drywall. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. My, my kitchen is, or my dining room is filled with mold. Well, it was worse than that, because I pulled it back, and all the houses in South Florida are all concrete block, at least all the ones made after, like, the 90s. And so I pulled it back and looked behind the furring strips where the concrete block was, and there was, like, a hole in the concrete block. Water was freely flowing, coming from through the roof down the concrete block. And we have this other little alcove. It's hard to explain. It's also drywall, and it looks like water was flowing down here and around. So I found myself, I was at this point of decision. Husbands, you know what this is like. I Two options. One, I can go back into that shop and get nails, and I can nail that baseboard right back in place and go right back to my meal and pretend nothing happened and I saw nothing. And I could justify that, hey, it's been there all this time and I didn't notice it, so what's, what's it going to hurt to let it continue? Or I could stop and recognize I've got a major problem on my hand that's got to be solved. And so that's what I did. I called our insurance company because it was big enough, and I ended up having to have really the whole front part of our house was torn out. They found a ton of mold, had to have all the molded abatement stuff go on. It was just a whole mess. But on the other side of it, my roof got fixed, my wall got fixed, and everything was right. Now, the problem is, is that I had worked so much on that house. I'd put so much money into it, so much time, and I'm always working on our house. I'm always doing projects, always repairing things, always improving stuff. And I sort of felt deflated. All of that work, and I still have this massive problem. And so after the thousands and thousands of dollars were paid, I thought, well, okay, now my house is going to be totally fine. And then here I was just weeks later doing more repairs and putting more money into it. And I thought, man, this house is a vacuum of joy, time, and cash. And it just continues to suck. Well, the thing about a house that you all know is that if you don't maintain it, it will rot down right around you. And your marriages are the same way. If we don't maintain our marriages, they will rot down right around us. And sometimes when you look towards your marriage, you might find something small, like a little crack in a window pane, a little hole, maybe the kids put in the bathroom wall there, or maybe something that's come loose, a towel hanger, or you might find something significant, like sort of big hairy mold like I found in my kitchen. And the reaction among most people in our day, even among churchgoers, to the big sort of mold finds in our marriage, the big problems, whether it be adultery or pornography or some hurt or some offense or some letdown, the normal path is just to cut and run, right? It would be sort of akin to me just saying, when I found this mold, here's the keys, call a realtor, we're out of here, let some other person have to deal with this, I'm moving on to a newer house. Foolishly thinking that new house wouldn't also be susceptible to things like mold and leaky roofs and problems with walls. In our marriages, we've got to do the hard work, but the problem is, unlike my home where I can call a contractor, I can call my insurance company, and someone else can do the heavy lifting, there's no one else to do that heavy lifting. Now, no doubt, as I said last night, you've got other brothers and sisters in Christ that God has given you in the church to come alongside and help you. You've got shepherds here that God has equipped to come alongside and instruct you in the Word of God to help you in that regard. You've, of course, got the Lord and the Holy Spirit present with you each day, the Word of God, which is our our sort of light and, and, and path, enlightening directive for fixing problems in our marriage. But by and large, you're the contractor. You've got to do the work. So the question is, how do you do that? What tools are you going to go out into your shop and get? I can go out. I've got a whole lot of tools that I've amassed over over my time of being an adult and being married. And by the way, if you come to my house, it's going to include a tour of my shop and those areas. I love those things. I'm very proud of them. Um, But you might be wondering, what tools do I have to fix my moldy marriage Well, this morning I'll introduce you to a toolbox that's really found right here in 1 Corinthians that's so elementary it might be overlooked. But I want to argue that the number one tool to use to deal with not only those big major problems and minor problems, but also just to maintain your marriage, is biblical love. Biblical love. Now, we use things like biblical and gospel all the time, so much so I don't even know if they make sense or have any meaning anymore, but when I use the word biblical, I'm doing that on purpose. Because when I talk about love, especially here from this pulpit, I don't mean the type of love that's reflected in music and movies and the culture around us. The type of love found in the scriptures is significantly different than the type of love that everyone else around us is experiencing, feeling, and always sort of posting about on all their different social media platforms. When you think about love today, you've got to go back to the Roman pantheon of gods and to Greek mythology and sort of this ancient understanding of love as a force. You wouldn't hear someone say it this way, but that's the way love is typically described in our world today. Love is a force, and it's... a powerful force and it comes in different ways. Sometimes it's a random force. You hear someone say, we don't, we don't choose who we fall in love with, it just sort of happens to us. And so we describe love sort of like a virus. You can't control it, you just catch it and it overwhelms you and it overcomes you. Sometimes love's described as an overwhelming force, and so it's not only random, but it sort of encompasses you, and it sort of enslaves you, and it moves you, and so it's sort of like, this thing's bigger than the both of us, baby, you know, this this sort of overwhelming, overcoming power. Sometimes it's described as an uncontrollable force. And this one's interesting. Hey, we can't choose who we fall in love with. It just happened we couldn't help it. And this one's interesting because you never hear this in a marriage ceremony. Go back to that picture from last night. You never have the pastor here say so to the potential bride. Do you love your husband? You never hear her say, well, I mean, right now, I mean, I've been feeling it for a while. I mean, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I can't control it, right? And the husband on the other side. I mean, how is he going to respond to that, by the way? He's going to die. But if, imagine if he said the same thing. Well, yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, I'm feeling it. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how it works out. I haven't met all the rest of her family and friends yet. You know, we'll kind of work it out. By the way, this one's most convenient about 10 to 15 years into marriage when you come to your pastor and say this. I fell out of love with my spouse. And it's interesting because it always corresponds with falling in love with someone else. Did you notice that? This is not biblical love. The other way that it's described as a force is a sexual force. And this is really probably the most base misrepresentation of biblical love where love is just nothing more than than just essentially animal feelings and expressions of those sexually speaking. In the Bible, love is described radically differently than the way that it's described anywhere else. And I want to talk about that for just a moment, then I want to get more practical with our passage. Look in your Bibles at Deuteronomy chapter 6. I didn't get into it last night because I wanted to save it for today. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have the text that stands behind what the Lord said in our passage from Matthew 22 last night. As he gave gave us a great commandment, he was quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verses 4 through 5. So I want to consider those here this morning to begin. In these two verses, we find a very simple definition of biblical love. You may not see it yet, but I promise you, in just a minute, you're going to see a very simple definition of biblical love. Hopefully, you'll use for the rest of your life, and it's right here. Look at verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, so let's take that apart just for a few moments. You should love the Lord with God with all of your heart. Now, when the word "heart" is used in the Bible, it's so important to recognize it does not refer to this muscle inside your chest cavity which pumps blood. It can, but typically the Bible refers to the heart in a different way. When the word heart is used, it's referring to something inside of you that drives you and directs you. It's it's really to the seat of your will. It's to the volitional part of man, to the part of you that makes decisions and makes choices. This goes back to what we talked about last night. Jesus says multiple times, that the heart is what's responsible for what we do and what we think and what we say. Jesus says, out of the heart come all manner of sins. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's consistently putting it back on man and his heart as being the ultimately one, the ultimate one that's responsible. So as a beginning of our definition for love, we have this part of man that makes choices. So we could say this, that love is an act of the will, or love is a choice. We'll start there. Love is a choice. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That refers to the inner man, to the mind, to an act of the will. Secondly, he says this, love the Lord your God with all of your soul, all of your soul. Now, this word soul also refers to the inner man, like heart, but rather than the, the seed, as it were, of the mind or the will, this is the seed of the emotions. This is the feeling part of man. This is the, the part of love that you experience, and we try to downplay the experiential part because the experiential part is what dominates the love as a force idea, but who can imagine loving their spouse and not feeling it? right? It's just that love's feelings aren't driving the bus, they're in one of the seats. Because if feeling is driving the bus, well, you're going to have a short drive, because those feelings change. You change, and your spouse changes. What we have here is this idea that love is, yes, a choice, but it's also something that we feel. We feel to different degrees, and sometimes it feels good, and sometimes it doesn't feel super good. Third way we can define love is love, it, it refers to the heart, love your Lord God with all your soul, and love the Lord your God with all of your strength. A simple word, it, just, it refers to our might, it refers to an exertion of energy, it refers to doing something. So to be devoted to God requires me to do something. Jesus said that, John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John, he says that, we, we don't just love in word only, but in deed also. So in the Bible, here we see primarily that love is something that you not only choose to do and that you feel, but that you demonstrate. And so there's our working definition for biblical love. Love is a choice filled with emotion that you demonstrate. So let's take that back to the context of your marriage, and let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. When I'm talking about my love for my wife, I've got to be careful that I don't keep using the wrong understanding of love. We often make this simple category error, and that while we're, and while we're Christians and we're part of a, of a biblical church and we want to be godly people, we often choose the type of love that accommodates our desires at that time. And so sometimes we're sort of on the, hey, love's a covenant, I've got to stick with you forever, babe. And over here, it's like, you know, I'm just not feeling it anymore. And I've seen that as a pastor. In fact, I've seen that many times as a pastor when the marriage, and they come to me as a sort of a trauma doctor, not as a primary care physician. When they come to me in that point, and they're ready to separate, now all of a sudden, they're not talking in a way that reflects what the Bible says about love. They're talking just like my lost neighbors talk. They sound just like a non-Christian in the way that they talk, because now what's taking place, it's no longer God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. It's their name, their kingdom, their will, and those things aren't being met, and so now they're doing whatever it takes in order to accomplish their goal. And in that moment, their goal is to get what they want. But beloved, when it comes to marriage as Christians, our understanding of love must be shaped by the word of God, but not by the world around us. And that's going to have some significant implications because it means when I'm standing there with my wife, when I'm getting married and almost 22 years ago we did this, I'm making a decision. And we live in a world where where decisions mean almost nothing anymore. We decide one thing today, and we have no no concept and no no idea that we'll really have to commit to it. We know that we can pull the parachute on almost anything, whether it be a contract, with your cell phone, or your cable provider, or what doctor you use, or your job. We are so good at cutting and running. With marriage, it's very different. It's a choice that lasts a lifetime. It's something that we feel, and you can go back in your mind to the day you were married. it, It felt good in those times. You felt a lot of joy. You felt a lot of hope, and maybe you are here today 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. You don't have that same feeling anymore. That's okay, because your marriage is not based upon that feeling. Remember, those feelings cannot be driving the bus. They must be in one of the seats in the back. Nope what we're going to talk about will bring you to a place where you can experience those feelings again, but remember those feelings change. Let let me just just talk about that for just a moment. Physiologically, organically, your bodies are going to go through multiple changes through the course of your marriage. And you and I often run into problems when we expect from our spouses sort of a static understanding of where they were the moment we got married. So let's talk about this in just a As honest as we can, sexual appetites is a big issue in marriage. Those things change as you get older. Change for men, they change for women, and a lot of our conflict has to do with our refusal to accept those changes. And so what we do is we say, First Corinthians 7, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me, and now you're sinning against me. Well, it's not that easy. Remember I said that we are hearts inside of broken bodies and we live in a broken world. It's dynamic and things change. But when you and I have this love that's based on a choice, it's accompanied by emotions that I demonstrate, then it's no longer all about you giving to me, my spouse owing me. Now I'm free to love her and you're free to love him regardless of what you feel that you have to have. So love is a choice filled with emotion that you demonstrate. Let's take it even further. Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 13. What will that look like? What will it mean to be devoted to God? Here's what it means to be devoted to God. To be devoted to God is to love your neighbor. Your closest neighbor is your spouse. And this biblical idea of love is further defined right here. So here's what it's going to mean for me to be devoted to God and love my neighbor. It's found in verses 4 through 7. Now let me stop for just a second. And you may have a plaque of this on your wall. If so, I don't want to rain on your parade, but this passage has zero. To do with marriage. This passage has nothing to do with marriage. This passage has to do with some massive conflicts within the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was marked by the same, almost the same type of lovelessness that the Pharisees and Sadducees were demonstrating that the Lord Jesus Christ was rebuking them over. You see, in Corinth they were as divided as the day is long. They all had their preacher, they all had their leader, they all had their preferences, and those things ruled the day. They were not selfless. In fact, they had so much conflict in the church in chapter 6, we learn they're suing each other. They had no means of reconciling one another. They did not overlook offenses, which Proverbs 19.11 says is a glory to a man. They magnified offenses. And so Paul writes here beginning in chapter 13, if you do all these things for the Lord but you don't love each other, everything you're doing is a waste. That's what he says in the first three verses. Essentially he says, look, you can have all the gifts in the world, you can be the most gifted teacher, most gifted preacher, most gifted servant, most gifted giver, whatever it is. But if you don't have love, all of that is wasted. And in fact, he actually describes it as meaningless. And I would take it a step further because I think the scriptures would bear this out. It's going to be used against you one day in judgment. Then he, he goes on in our section, verses 4 to 7, to describe what it's like to love Christians in the context of that broken world that's marked by sin. You see, when you came together one to another, you were one sinner puts one sinner, and so now we're sinning together. But in the congregation, in the church of God, isn't that magnified hundreds and hundreds of times over? And we see this same idea of cutting and running play out in churches all the time. But we sin against each other in the church as well. That's what Paul's addressing here. So how should we love each other in the context of the church? Now, can we apply this type of love to marriage? Yes, and that's what we're gonna do. But the passage is not principally about marriage. It's about loving people in the context of a fallen world where people sin. So let's start here. I'm gonna group these together two by two pretty much. But the first one is this. Love suffers long And is kind here's what this love is supposed to look like love suffers long and is kind the idea here is the idea of patient love a patient love is interesting because it's so telling the very first thing paul says you've got to do when you love other people has to do with the reality of being offended i don't have to be patient with you when you give me everything that i want I don't have to be patient with you when you're always on my timetable and you're always reflecting my desires. I have to be patient with you when you don't do what I want and you don't give me what I want. This is a wonderful starting point when it comes to applying to marriage. We have to be patient with each other within the context of our marriage because we will sin against each other. We've got to stop being so surprised. I am not trying to minimize sin. I'm not even trying to give you a pass or a license to sin. But you and I would be foolish to continue to be surprised when we're sinned against by our spouses. You and I shouldn't be surprised, and we're not surprised when we sin against God. Why are we so surprised when our spouses sin against us? Here's something that I tend to do, and maybe you do this too, but let's just say it's about me. I tend to do this. I look at the way that I sin against God and I think, oh man, grace is going to cover that. It's not a big deal. It's going to be fine. The Lord's going to be okay with that. You let my wife sin against me in the smallest way, it's like she has just come against God and all of his authority and law, and I'm telling you, judgment has got to fall. And we have that tendency. By the way, this is what's behind us getting so angry sometimes at our kids or our bosses or other people in the church. It's because we're wanting to apply to them a law that we don't ever want to apply to us. Patience is a starting point to begin to overrule this. So if I'm going to love my wife in a way that reflects my devotion to God in a biblical way, sort of this love as a choice. love is a choice that's accompanied by emotions. Love's a choice accompanied by emotions that I demonstrate, I'm going to have to demonstrate it by being patient. Now, is being patient easy? I dare someone to raise their hand and say being patient is easy, right? Being patient is hard. But this is why God has given us the spirit of God. He's given us the word of God. He's given us the church of God to help us. We've got to be patient. The word actually refers to being slow to anger, to having a long fuse. The Bible says in Proverbs 19.11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Let me going to keep going because there's going to be so many of those to cover. The second part is more on the active side. He says love is kind. Kindness is interesting. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this verb, to be kind, is used. This word actually refers to to us actively seeking to do good things to people that we're supposed to love. So if love is a choice accompanied by emotions that I demonstrate, I've got to demonstrate it to my closest neighbor by being patient, That means by forbearing with her when she disappoints me, when she offends me, when she doesn't live according to my will, but then I've got to do more than just sitting there silently. It's not enough to say, well, Mark, I I didn't didn't blow my top. I didn't lose it. I kind of just bit my tongue. No, 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 no. no, We're not there yet. Now we've got to actively seek to do things for her good for his good, for her benefit. This is at the heart of selflessness. Turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. You ever want to look to a verse to apply to marriage? Here it is. Philippians chapter 2. If you go to verse number 3 and 4, you'll see two texts that apply so importantly and so wonderfully to your marriage. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Starting place has got to be the home. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I'll tell you, my marriage will be marked by, characterized by, and paralyzed by conflict if I consistently make it about me. But when I work hard to make it about my wife, it's going to come out in kindness. Kindness. That's working to be encouraging and complimentary and affectionate. Now, I want you to recognize something, and men, I want to talk to you, and women too. Paul does not say, be patient and kind if your spouse is patient and kind back. We tend to put conditions upon the commands of God that are based on reciprocation. And so when we're not sensing this reciprocation, we feel like now we have a right, sometimes even a duty, to sort of turn this faucet off. Beloved, these are commands of God. The commands of God are not conditional upon the behavior of other people. You and I must do this regardless of whether or not they're reciprocated. And I'll tell you, listen, if your marriage is in trouble, if you've got problems, I'm telling you, this is the tool to grab. Start working on these things. Start being patient. Start being kind. You say, Mark, I I tried that yesterday. It didn't solve my problems. Well, my wall didn't get moldy overnight. and Your marriage didn't get to where it is overnight either. It's going to take some time to fix that wall. It's going to take some time to fix that marriage. You've got to develop a new pattern. This is something hopefully we'll have time to talk about that's referred to in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. This is part of the doctrine of change in the Christian life. We've got to put off those old patterns of the flesh and put on new patterns of the spirit. This is what it means to walk in the spirit. Again, let me go back to this, and I talk about this a lot in our church because this is so important. You want to talk about being filled with or led by the Holy Spirit, again, don't show me people falling on the ground and flopping around and doing things. Show me people that are daily making the decision to choose to honor and obey God and say, in this moment, I'm going to walk according to what the Spirit of God has said. I'm going to do it in His power, and now it's going to come out in supernatural kindness. You want to see the power of the Holy Spirit in your marriage? Show me someone being kind, even if their spouse isn't being kind back. Love is patient. Love is kind. Number two, love does not envy And love does not parade itself. These two are actually related. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. By the way, he's going to give us eight now that are in the negative of what love isn't supposed to do. And we could now assume these are all things the Corinthians were doing. Because these are all essentially corrective in nature. And so Paul's not necessarily going to be addressing things they weren't doing. We already know they were plagued by these things. So these next eight things is things that characterize them. And Paul says, stop it. This isn't how Christians treat each other. By the way, in our church, we did 15 sermons through this section. One sermon for each of these. And walking through these is devastating the more time you spend on them. But this is what God wants for us. So love does not envy, love does not parade itself. The idea that NASB uses jealous here. The idea is very simple. To love my spouse and to love others is to ensure that I am running to be second. Fighting to be first all the time in every argument, every discussion, every, every major decision, in the home, jockeying for position, your marriage is in trouble. And you're, you're not on the right path. If, you're, if your marriage is boiling down to who's first, which sometimes comes out in who's right, well, then you're on the wrong path here. Because love, it doesn't envy. It's, it's not always trying to be in the first place. Love requires me to think of my spouse in terms of their value, her value before God, and to work to encourage her, support her, and rejoice with her. My responsibility in marriage is to consistently make it about my wife. Now again, this is counter to our culture, because in our culture, we are not only told but encouraged to make it about us. In fact, it is now the highest virtue for you to embrace complete and utter selfishness in our culture. In fact, it's seen as liberating and freeing, and religion is seen, we talked about chains being broken as it were, what's what's talked about in our culture today is the way that religion actually forces you to put yourself second, as if that's some horrible thing. Beloved, putting ourselves first is at the root of all of our problems. Putting ourselves second is a reflection of the type of love Christ loves us with but also that he's empowered us to love our spouse with as well. So love does not envy. It's not always looking and jockeying to be first and and upset when it doesn't get first. Parading itself, parading itself is not merely wanting to be first, but parading itself is putting itself first. So if in your marriage you're turning everything back to you all the time, you ever have a conversation with people like that? It can be frustrating, and it's really frustrating if that's who you are. So, so the bad news of that is if you get really frustrated by it, it might be because you're mad because you want it to be about you. But if every conversation comes back to you, every story comes back to you, every, everything that's happened comes back to you. Someone else just says, hey, I, I got the flu today, and you can't just let that be about them having the flu. It's got to now be about the times you've had the flu. This is the type of problem we're talking about, and this is huge in our marriages Sometimes husbands, your wife are not, let me, know. your wife's almost never asking you a question. It turns out even the questions aren't actually questions. 22 years in, I'm finally trying to pick up on that. So sometimes when a question's asked, I'm like, and I'm thinking, I feel like this is going to go one of two ways. Both of them are wrong and I'm going to lose out. So I want to be really careful here. I say that because sometimes it's more about me just being quiet and listening and, and, and allowing it to be about my wife and what she faced during that day. It's so easy to be consumed with ourselves, beloved, and to focus on all of my problems and all of my, my issues that I face. Well, well, if you have a spouse, your spouse has those too. So you want to demonstrate that love. Remember, love is a choice that you feel, that you demonstrate. You want to, you want to demonstrate it? Well, allow it to be about your spouse. Don't parade yourself all the time. Don't make it constantly about you. Just listen. And that's hard for me to do. It's hard for all of us to do, I imagine. But this is one of those things that we have to put to death. And we have to work to put on. I have to work to not be that person. I hear this a lot in church. Mark, you don't understand. This is so funny. God just made me this way. And people often say it this way. They'll say, hey, I just say what's on my mind. That's the way God made me. You should be happy. I don't lie. Actually, to that person, I often say, have you ever read the book of Proverbs? I'm guessing you haven't. Because in the book of Proverbs, that person's called a fool, by the way. You know that, right? The person that can't keep their tongue is actually the fool in the Bible. But what we often do is blame our sinfulness on God's design. We've actually made a mistake there. It's mistaken identity. My selfishness is not God's design. God didn't make me that way. The fall made me that way. Adam made me that way. Jesus saved me because I am that way, and it's through the gospel I'm supposed to stop being that way. So if being patient and being kind and not envying and prating itself is hard for me, great news, that's where the gospel can begin to work. This is the role of change in my life, putting off And putting on. Number three, love is not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. Simply put, love is humble. This is hard, beloved, but this. This is really at the heart of a lot of our conflicts. Sometimes when I'm doing counseling, I, in my mind, I have a tendency to just listen with sort of a biblically critical ear, and I'm listening for certain things. And I do lots of different exercises and walk through lots of different diagrams, and they're all intended to get past all the conversation and get to the heart of what's going on. But one of the things I'm listening for is who has to be right. And I'm doing that to try to identify sort of this landmine, this furry mold of arrogance in the marriage. Arrogance will kill your marriage. Arrogance will kill your joy. It will kill your hope. And in marriage, you've got to put it to death. Marriage has to be marked by a humble love. Here's what the arrogant person looks like. The arrogant person says things like this. If you've ever said something like this, I, you, I might as well give you a microphone because I guarantee you have a testimony. Husbands, if you've ever said to your wife these words, I know you heard a proper correction. If you've said this, do you know how many women in this church would love to be married to someone like me? <laughs> I would be happy to give you the microphone because that did not go well for you. <laughs> it did not go well for you. And the fact that you said that actually proves that list is a lot shorter than you think it is. The arrogant person thinks that they're doing their spouse a favor. The arrogant person thinks their spouse is the luckiest person on earth. And here's how it comes out. Listen, I'm doing you a favor, so the least you can do is shut up and do it my way. Listen, you're lucky to have me. I'm sort of kind of, I've actually gone down a few notches to be married to you, and so in this marriage, it's going to be my way. All right? You, it can look however you want to look on the outside, but in the reality, it's going to be my way. And so it's going to be about my desires, my will, and my kingdom. That sounds familiar. It keeps coming back to my mind. What is it? Oh, yeah, that's what Jesus said we shouldn't do. Humble, selfless love is at the heart of a biblical marriage. Love does not behave rudely. NASB uses does not behave unbecomingly. This is how pride expresses itself in the context of relationships. You want to find someone rude? I'll show you someone that's prideful. Rudeness is the mouth on the body of pride. Rudeness executes those harsh, bitter, cutting words that are in the heart of the prideful person that sees themselves at the top and the other person at the bottom. This person doesn't care about the person enough to care about how they feel. Now, beloved, think about this. If it's not crossing your mind how your spouse is hearing what you're saying or how your spouse is responding to what you're doing, beloved, that that might mean that you, you don't care about them the way that you say that you do. And this is something that I've had to check many times in my own marriage. I've had to stop and sit back. Why am I not concerned about the way this might sound to my wife? Why am I not concerned about the way my wife might think about this? Why am I so consumed with me? It's about me and my justice and my kingdom, and there has been a wrong, and it must be righted, and don't you understand? I cannot let this go. All of that is just an expression of pride. Sometimes in marriage, especially as a pastor, one who teaches us all the time, and and has a loving, gracious wife, I sometimes find myself thinking, okay, so basically I'm always going to be wrong because it's always going to be my pride and I've just got to live with this fact that I'm going to have to fight to be humble every day. And that's the reality. Because my flesh pushes me to make it about me and to be prideful. Marriages that have begun to break down are often characterized by rudeness, and they're characterized by rudeness not as the root issue, but as a symptom of the root issue, which is pride, and that pride is a symptom of the deeper root issue, and that is a failure to truly love, and that's a symptom of a deeper root issue, and that is a, a real failure to be devoted to God. See how they're all connected? My devotion to God is played out in my love for my closest neighbor. My love for my closest neighbor is demonstrated And it's demonstrated through things like humility and kindness. Number four, love does not seek its own. This is the sin of selfishness applied to marriage, applied to relationship. Biblical love gives and gives and gives. It serves, it serves, it serves, and it just keeps going. It doesn't have limits. Beloved, when we use that language, we're using the language of the world. I'm done at this point. No. Praise God Jesus has never said that about the church. Praise God, Jesus has never said that about me. Mark, you get two, maybe three more times, and then I've done. I've had enough of this. That's all the language of the world. My love and devotion and service to my spouse or my children, it has no bounds because that's the nature of biblical love. It gives, it gives, it gives, it gives. It does not seek its own. So go back to that picture, the husband comes home, he's kind of envisioned this this type of experience where he'll be received warmly, like a sailor coming home from from a a deployment away at sea for six months, his kids are all going to be ready to shower him with gifts and affection, the wife's made this wonderful meal, walks in and the toilets are overflowing and the wife walks out. This type of love at that point says, listen, I am willing to do whatever it takes to love you. And so I will come in and I will do that. I don't see problems. I don't see suffering. I don't see sort of failures to meet my expectations as violations of my law now. Now I'm freed up not to think of my spouse in those terms, and now I'm ready to serve. I may not like it, and it may, it, it's going to cut against what I want to do, but at that moment I've got to work really hard to put that to death, and I've got to put on this new man of kindness and selfless service. Love does not seek its own. Number five, love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. These two are related. Love is not provoked. When I preached this one, this was the title of that sermon, Love Does Not Lose It. I'm sure none of you have ever said, I'm going to lose it. Maybe, Maybe some other people have said that you've heard of. But this idea is being easily set off having this hair trigger that's being touchy where you're always on edge, ready to take offense at anything that's said and everything turns into a fight and when you get in the car, you're just waiting for it. I know, I know he's going to say something. I know she's going to say this. After all that I did today, I just know how this is going to go and I'm ready. It's like the Wild West and the, the jacket's off. My hands are on the six shooters. I'm ready to go. I dare you to say something to me. Now, if you've been married any long time, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you've done this a hundred times. You may have done this this morning. You, we got a 15-minute break. That's plenty of time. You know what this is like. That, what I'm saying is when I do that to my wife, I cannot at the same time say something like this, I love you. No. This is a contradiction. Love is a choice filled with emotions that I demonstrate. I am demonstrating I love me more than you in that moment. Do you see how this works? When I am am provoked easily in that moment, I have changed this hierarchy. Nope, not you first. Me first. And I love me so much I'm willing to go to battle with anyone, anyone that violates my love for myself. Love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. The NASB uses, or the NIV uses that familiar phrase, keeps no record of wrongs, which I don't think is necessarily probably the best way to relate this. The NASB uses doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, actually prefer the new King James, thinks no evil. The idea here is bitterness. The idea here is is that I am Santa in this marriage, and I'm keeping a list, and I'm checking it twice an hour. And there's not a naughty and nice. There's just a naughty, and it's you. Listen, I've sat down with people, and, and in context of marital counseling, biblical counseling, I've sat down, and I've just sort of surveyed it. We use these uh, PDI forms where they do a lot of work beforehand to sort of give me some insight to the, to the initial meeting, but I'll sit down, and I'm just kind of trying to triage where things are, and I'll, I'll start to ask some diagnostic questions, and sometimes it doesn't take long for one of the spouses to do something. They'll, they'll usually, they're with the pastor, act cool, act cool, right? No, we read our Bible this morning, pastor. No, just praise God. I love your office and all the books. 30 seconds later, you're just like your mother. I can't believe I married you. And I'm like, wow, that escalated fairly quickly. What you don't know is my walls are super thin, and everyone heard what you just did, by the way. So when you walk back out, amen, can I get a copy of the pastor's sermon from last week? Do you have a new Bible I can buy? You're not fooling anybody, right? But often what will happen is, after just a short amount of time, the list comes out. I have literally seen it on a spreadsheet. I've literally had a spouse, I won't say what sex. Bring me an Excel spreadsheet in a green folder. And I asked that moment, I don't want to see that. No one wants to see that. Listen, this is in love. And I can prove it to you really, really quickly. If I told you that I could prove, which I can't, but if I told you I could prove that God is in heaven and right now Jesus is writing on a list of all your failures and every day he looks at it, you would say, that's not Jesus Christ from the Bible. Don't you da- you would consider that blasphemy. Don't you dare talk about Jesus as someone that's holding a grudge and bitter. And yet, when we do that in the confines of marriage, we somehow believe that we're loving our spouse. We're doing something Jesus would never do, and we would never essentially tolerate, as it were, theologically speaking. Love is not bitter. Love is the opposite. It covers offenses. It covers them with mercy. Just as the Lord, and I'm telling you, every moment of every day, when I go to bed at night, I'm not, I'm not going to bed putting my head on the pillow thinking, man, yeah, you know, I did more good than bad. I hope Jesus saw that. No, I'm thinking about the cross. And I know the Lord knows my sinfulness far beyond even my understanding of it. I'm just saying thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing yourself for me, for fully paying the penalty for my sins. I'm so thankful for what you've done. My hope is now in him fully. And in marriage, I'm supposed to do something similar. I'm supposed to overlook some offenses once in a while. I'm going to argue that should characterize my marriage. My marriage should be characterized not by the old covenant, but by the new covenant. It should be more about grace and mercy than it should be about law and justice. And I believe that's what Is at heart here. Number six, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. Let me go through this one really quickly. This is the idea of two sinners coming together. There's going to be sin. There's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be hardships. Focusing on those things, emphasizing those things, always trotting those horses out of the barn. It's not going to be a reflection of love. Number seven, love bears all things. Love bears all things. Now we get to four concluding characteristics that are positive. When I preached this one, the title was this, Love Doesn't Make a Big Deal Out of Everything. Let me just say that again. Real Christian love. Remember, love is a choice that we feel that we demonstrate. When I demonstrate it, I'm reflecting my devotion to God. I demonstrate it by loving my spouse the way I'm supposed to love all Christians. And this is what it looks like. And one of the things that it does is it doesn't make a big deal out of everything. Now, this is hard for me at times. My flesh wants to make a big deal out of stuff. And maybe yours does as well. Yours does as well. But true biblical love, it bears things and it just covers them with love. It looks at an offense, It looks at a hurt. It looks at a raised voice. It looks at a missed appointment. It looks at a forgotten detail. It looks at something messed up, a messed up meal, a messed up house. And it just looks at it and says, love, grace, mercy. We're moving on. This train is never going to make it if we keep stopping. In order to sweep out all that stuff, it's not going to work. My marriage, your marriage has got to be characterized by this kind of bearing over love. Not overbearing, but a bearing over love where we just say, you know what? I love you. I know you love me. Who in here who says they would love Christ, who in here who says they do love Christ would say, I intentionally set out to sin against God? Well, of course, that would make you most likely not a Christian. Why is it we think that's what our spouses are doing? We have to, my spouse, she literally stays up all night conceiving ways to mess with me. That's what we think. Not my wife. She would never do that. I have actually heard that in counseling. Pastor, the only time I see my wife smiling is when she has just thoroughly thrashed me. Which she always smiles at that point, by the way, which I find just wildly ironic in those moments. But your spouse doesn't set out to destroy you, just like you don't set out to disobey and dishonor God. Remember, we are a dynamic heart in the midst of a broken body and a broken world, and things are difficult. Love believes all things. This one was entitled, Love Believes the Best. Merciful love trust God. Beloved, we live in a world that believes the worst. Christian love believes the best. We always believe the best. Matter of fact, we had T-shirts made up at our church of all of these different ones, and this is one of the ones that didn't sell super good, but love always believes the best. But the idea here is, is that when I'm, when I'm staring down the barrel of an offense or a disappointment or a sin on the hands of my spouse, my first move shouldn't, shouldn't be to believe that she's trying to attack me. It should be to believe the best. I know she was probably overwhelmed with the flesh. I know she loves me. I know she cares for me. I know she wants, she wants to honor me. I know she wants to be a godly wife. I, I, I'm going to believe the best about her. We often make such sinful judgments about each other's motives. And we don't even do this as much with strangers as we do with the people in the bed next to us. If you've gotten to the point where you look at the person in the bed next to you as your enemy and not as God's gift to get you to the end, there is a problem. And likely it's because you have failed to believe the best about what God's given to you and about the spouse that you have. How can I do that? Well, I can only believe the best by trusting in God. This is, by the way, what it looks like to take that of one Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, and put it into action. Who knows that verse? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He will make your paths straight. Well, where does that apply? What well, applies everywhere in the Christian life? How about you apply it to Our marriage. I've got to trust God. I I don't know the solution to this problem. I don't know how to solve this conflict, but I know that God does, and I know God can handle this. So here's what it looks like to trust God. I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to bear with this offense. I'm going to be kind and selfless. I'm going to love my spouse as I love God, and I'm going to trust him. The problem is is that functionally we operate like atheists, so we're Bible-believing, and we're good, solid Christians. We functionally act like atheists in the context of our marriage, thinking that we're sort of like survivors or preppers somewhere in Montana, always trying to protect ourselves. And so we're always ready to go. I'll do whatever I have to, and we're like a cat in an alley backed in a corner. We're ready to do whatever we have to do. When we're doing that, beloved, we're not trusting God. In fact, in that world, we don't even need God because we made ourselves God. God becomes this far-off, distant backup plan. If your marriage has troubles right now, beloved, your only hope is God. Your only hope is a gospel. Number nine, love hopes all things. This one's very similar to believing all things. I don't want to spend a great deal of time there but it's an optimistic love. If you're in a place now with your marriage where you feel like, you know what, there's just no hope for us, there's no way to solve these problems, there's no way to fix 25 years, 30 years, 40 years of bitterness and brokenness and conflict, beloved, you need a healthy dose, a tall glass of love, hope's all things, of entrusting this to God. What is the gospel if it's not the story of restoration? of the conflict between a holy God and sinful man. Well, What is your marriage if it's not the story of conflict between two sinners? And if the gospel can bring about restoration between you and God, how could it not also bring about restoration in the context of your marriage? Hope's all things. Finally, love endures all things. Your marriage is based on biblical love, which is a decision. That decision is for life. I go back to what I said before. We we get cable, we don't like it, we cancel. We get internet service, we don't like it, we cancel. We get a cell phone, we cancel. Credit card, we cancel. Everything in our world is all about a lack of commitment. You want to see this love that really reflects the devotion of God? Have the kind of love He loves us with. Could you imagine Jesus one day canceling His love for us? There's entire groups of professing Christians that believe that. That's not good news to me, that's not the gospel. Our love for each other is lifelong. It's, it's, it's long haul love. You're in it until the end. And when you and I can resolve to that, when you and I can sort of make that commitment internally and let it work out functionally, we can experience we can experience all of these elements sort of coming together because we recognize this isn't, this isn't a puzzle I've got to make with my kid to get him quiet in 30 minutes. This, this is Picasso painting, the biggest painting that's ever been painted. It's gonna take a lifetime. Just like the work God is doing in me to make me like Christ began the moment I got saved and it ends the moment that I die or the Lord returns and it, it encompasses every moment of that span, my marriage is the same way. It's a story of God refining me through my spouse. Of God revealing to me sinful areas of my life I never would have recognized if I had not been given this spouse. This is hard, but it's true. But one of the greatest benefits of having a spouse is the way God uses he or she to point out sinfulness in your life. Nobody wants to hear that. And I am at the front of that line. But it's true. Because your spouse sees you when no one else does. He or she knows who you really are. Think about it. That's, by the way, why we do this. I don't have my phone, but, you know, you're sitting there in the midst of an argument or whatever it is that you're doing, and the phone rings, and all of a sudden we become a different human being. Hey, how are you? Oh, we were just praying and we were reading our Bible and the other spouse is like, you've lost your entire mind. Now you're a liar. I'm adding that to the list of offenses now. What a horrible person. And then puts the phone down. Don't you think for a second I'm not not angry with you still. I still am. What is happening? Is she demon possessed? No, here's what's happening. We're constantly managing people. We're constantly manipulating people. You see what I want you to see. You see what I want to be. My spouse knows that's not who I am. My spouse knows who I am. The reason I sin against the people closest to me is because they know me. And that's who I am. Who I am on the phone is who I want to be. And praise God, that could be a godly thing. And it's Christ and it's the gospel and the spirit of God that can get me there. But the reason I sin against my spouse the most is because I can't fool her. She knows who I am. So you want to window into your relationship with Christ. Just look at your conversations last night. Look at your arguments. Look at the bitterness in your heart. Look at the lack of patience, lack of kindness. That's probably a better determining factor on your walk with Christ than how much you do for the Lord and the churches. It's who we are. But praise God, He's given us a spouse so we can become like Him. Let me end with a few thoughts and we'll end on time. I want to go back to something I said last night. I won't repeat it in the, se- in the third session, but let me just say this. If you don't know God's redemptive love, then you don't know something I know about this. Because this list is the resume of Jesus. This is who my Savior is. This isn't who I am. And this isn't even something I can do on my best day. I'm only able to love this way with God's help and God's work in my heart. But this is who Jesus is every moment of every day. If you don't know Christ by faith, if you've you've not experienced this work of grace in your heart, you likely don't know this kind of love. And now you not only don't have a map, but you don't have the power and this sort of internal well to give this kind of love to your spouse. And so go back to what I said last night. The beginning step in all this is the gospel. The gospel. You've got to know this type of love so you can know this Jesus in order to give this love to others. The second one is this. Think about the way that you love your spouse. Think about the last argument you had. Think about the thoughts that went through your mind. Think about why you decided to come here. I know you've got a long list, and maybe maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, as you walk through this list, oh, my wife isn't that, my wife isn't that, Pfft, my wife never is gonna be that. If you're doing that, by the way, I'd love to hold a large mirror up to you. Because you're walking down a very familiar path. But let's stop for a moment and let's not consider the ways our spouse is failing to meet this list. Let's look at ourselves. Where do I score? When I compare my love, functionally speaking, not theoretically, functionally speaking, where do I score on this list? And then do this. Let's take it a step further. Don't even trust yourself. Ask your spouse, where do I score on this list? And allow God to use that as a grace to refine your understanding of your love. Number three, we need to pray for the ability to look at how we're failing to love our spouse and focus less on their failings. I'll get into that in the next section, but we often become consumed with our spouse's failures. We need to ask God to help us to focus on our own. And number four, we need to work hard to repent of unloving acts, words, or patterns that have been present in our life, keeping us from loving our spouse this way. Essentially, we need to repent of failures to love this way and pray for God's help to begin to love this way. And I want to argue that you've got to do that specifically. So may God help us by holding up this mirror. Remember, love is a choice. It's accompanied by, not driven by emotions, that I demonstrate. Well, how do I demonstrate? We demonstrate it by being like Jesus. Well, how does Jesus love us? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us exactly how. So may God help me to love my spouse this way, not just today, but every day and more and more each day. Father, help me, even as I've prepared for this and spent hours praying and studying the scriptures in anticipation of this day, Father, I've been convicted anew of my failure to love my wife in this way, and Lord, I recognize this is a path, this is a process. Father, help me to have eyes that are so much keener to see my own failure than they are to see hers. And and Father, help me to repent of and confess those sins and to put them away. they, They shouldn't characterize the way that I live now. And help me to begin to live in a way that reflects this new life that you've given me. And may my marriage be strengthened and may you be glorified as I do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.